A note to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. We want you to know that this episode contains the descriptions of events and circumstances in which people have died. We also discuss major historical events that some of our listeners might find upsetting. On April 8th, 1817, the Bank of New South Wales opened as the first financial institution in the Australian colonies. It was established by Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who advocated its potential to increase the wealth of free settlers and emancipated convicts alike. But when the first customers arrived for the grand opening at 10am in what is now downtown Sydney, they found someone had already made a deposit. Three days before, one Jeremiah Murphy had somehow managed to deposit a huge amount of money. So how is it that someone could get into the bank before the ribbon was even cut? And why is it important for a bank to have control over its own story? Current CEO, thankfully, is a history buff. His undergrad degree was in history. He understands that you don't get to be where you are without actually understanding where you've come from. And what do these stories leave out? I'm holding mirrors up to white people to reflect upon their own story and and to, to work out where they go from here. I first heard about this mysterious deposit on an interview on our other 2SER podcast, Glam City, and it seemed pretty weird. Like, where did all this money come from? So he was effectively just a soldier, and he had this really large amount of money that he put into the bank, which was far more than his wages. When you look into what he was doing in the year preceding this deposit, he had been sent out by Governor Macquarie, quote, in pursuit of natives. That's really how they described Aboriginal people. I couldn't get that out of my head. So I asked Nicole Sutton, who's a lecturer at the UTS Business School, and producer Jason Lecuyer to investigate. Honestly, as an accountant, I was really excited to go and investigate this first deposit at Australia's first bank. And it's because, well, accounting has this magical way of transforming reality into a set of numbers. So if we go back and have a look at those numbers then we might be able to grasp a glimpse about what that reality might have looked like. In the bank's official history, there is mention of this sergeant, Jeremiah Murphy, who somehow managed to deposit £50 into the bank before it officially opened. But they skip over it really quickly and give credit to someone else. So we wondered, why is his deposit downplayed? And how would someone in the military get that much money? £50 isn't going to buy you much today. Like, what what was that worth in 1817? Well, I mean, it was a little bit tricky to say because there was such crisis with the currency, but it was a huge amount of money. Like, when we're saying huge, how huge? Like, if we were to look at how much he was earning, for example, and we put it in today's terms, that's over 90000 Australian dollars. Wow. It's a lot of money. Where does someone like Jeremiah Murphy get that kind of money? Well, there's been some speculation about how a sergeant in the British military would have earned this kind of money, but we wanted some hard answers. Don't get me wrong, I really like historians. I really do. But in this case, I want to see the document that was created by the accountant. That's just my bias. Okay, fair enough. So we're basically an office, 
um, stuck onto a very large storage facility. So <laughs> there's two sections. Banks archives are tucked away in this nondescript kind of warehouse out in an industrial precinct, way out in the outskirts of Sydney. And when we get there, we go down the steps and we're met there by two sausage dogs. Just can see who they are. Yeah, sure. And the archivist, Kim. One of our um, main operating sort of processes is to stay completely under the radar because this is an industrial area. Um, there aren't people around all the time. So one of our security measures is to stay as, as unidentifiable as we can. Right. So in here you've got um, row upon row upon row upon row of individual branch ledgers. Some of them are, well, probably A3 sized, but the majority are 15 centimetres wide, maybe about 60 centimetres high, 40 odd wide, and they weigh over 10 kilos each. They're massive. They're all leather bound. Most of them have, um, there's got these suede spines and that suede is actually kangaroo skin and that accounts for the particular smell. It also accounts for the fact that they're actually disintegrating quite a lot. So try not to bump into them because you'll end up all, all dirty. It sounds pretty hard to find this archive. What did you find inside it? We found accounting records and these accounting records, they're not there for anyone in particular to see. These documents, and there's a lot of them, they're just much more functional. They're there as a way of the bank to account for its money. These ledgers were created so that we could keep track of how much money had come in and how much we had sent out. I don't think there was ever any idea when the general ledgers in particular were created that they would then form some sort of amazing historical record of everything that had happened in Australia. And we're lucky that these ledgers are here at all. Kim said they survived only by chance. So as the bank shifted from these more handwritten ledgers to digital accounting, branches all across the country had these incredible ledgers but nowhere to put them. From about 1979 onwards, the archives put out a call to all of those branches and said, if you've got those old things, just bring them in here. And the idea was that we would then be able to safely destroy them. But we realised once they started coming in just what an incredible record they are. So the initial reason for collecting these amazing ledgers was just to destroy them? Yeah, it's crazy, right? And it sounds like it was just a pragmatic move to modernise their accounting systems at the time. But to destroy these intricately handwritten ledgers, that would have been such a huge loss. Oh, yeah. I mean, historians and accountants would be without one of their key sources and we might never have known about this first deposit. As we're standing in five and a half kilometres of shelf of these ledgers, I couldn't help but think about scientists who look at core ice samples or tree rings to get a sense of the changes that have happened over time. And here we were standing amongst all these ledgers and it gave us a sense of all these things that have happened in Australia economically over the last 200 years. And so in these five kilometres of ledgers, were you able to find Jeremiah Murphy? So we get to the first ledger, turn the yellow pages. He's there. He's the first one up here. And you can see his signature. So you found his entry. What else does that tell you about him? Well, general ledgers can often tell us lots because you can see the transactions going in and out of someone's account. So, for example, if you look in my personal bank account, you'll see that I often get a coffee on the way to work, I have private health insurance. Good point. 
But who paid Jeremiah Murphy's salary? Well, here's the thing. Like, in his account, it's really stark. It's his name, 50 pounds comes in, and 50 pounds goes out. So money goes in and five months later it goes out and that's all we know. Well, there was one more clue because it stated that Jeremiah Murphy was a member of the 46th Regiment in the British military. And luckily, the British military were assiduous in their record-keeping too. We are in the State Library and we found some microfilm and we're going to look at it. There were reels and reels of microfilm there with the records of the British regiment stationed in the colonies. And in the collection, I found a white box containing the payroll of the 46th. That's Murphy's regiment. If he was able to deposit £50 at the Bank of New South Wales, I thought that maybe this film would give us a clue about how much he was getting paid. This looks like a ledger of some description that would be in terms of figuring out the actual pay to all the soldiers within a particular unit. And we can see the total amount. Corporals. We're getting close now. And here's the sergeants. There's our man, Jeremiah Murphy. He's got a note there. He didn't get paid the entire pay in this one. He actually only got paid from the 4th of March to the 24th of June, so not the entire period. Mm-hmm. What's the reason? He was promoted. That must mean he must be in the corporal section too. There he is. Jeremiah Murphy. Mm-hmm. Where he was making... Roughly four, four pounds, 15 shillings, 10 pence. And then he bumps up to be a sergeant rate which works out to be about seven pounds, one shilling, ten pence. So I'm confused. I mean, he sounds like he's getting paid some money or maybe he's not getting paid enough. He's promoted. You know, is he only getting 30 pounds a year? Yeah, and that's after he's been promoted in April 1815 and then again in 1816. But that's that's obviously half of what he put in the bank. I mean, was there something else going on here? If he deposited more than his annual income, where else is he getting money from? Exactly. So we thought maybe he had some kind of side gig. But I remembered something in high school about rum being used as a currency. So we wondered if people are paying each other in rum, perhaps there are more currencies around. There is a real trade in rum. A lot of the rum corps, as you know, were military officers. And the the trading of rum, which was then sold to the commissariat to be given to the army, comes out of that. So we put in a call to London. I'm Dr. Aaron Graham. I'm a research fellow at University College London. Right. So this is the guy you told me about who looks at currency across the British Empire. Right. So there's, there's economic networks here that would generate that kind of money, certainly. Okay, so soldiers are being paid in rum as well as in pounds. But what's this commissariat? It was basically the Sydney outpost of the London Treasury, and it supplied food and equipment to the troops. And often it was used to pay people, officially in pounds, but sometimes in other currencies too. So the people that controlled it, they had real power. 
And that whole time, Murphy had this kind of administrative role as a non-commissioned officer, or NCO, taking care of something like a union fund. What you often find is that these NCOs are also in charge of regimental funds. There's a whole economy that runs within the regiment that helps to support various uh, social activities, informal activities. And a responsible guy like, um, like Jeremiah Murphy, that, that may have been where all the money that he's working with comes from. Okay, so as an accountant, Nicole, what do you make of all of that? Well, you've got to understand the kind of economy that they were working with. And to understand what was going on when Murphy made that deposit, we have to go back to 1810 when Governor Lachlan Macquarie first set foot in the colony. Uh, I was wondering when Macquarie would show his head. You can't talk about early New South Wales history without him. Yeah, well, guilty confession. I didn't actually know that much about Macquarie before we started this story, other than the fact that he was governor at some point in time. But once we started this research, we began to see him everywhere. We have streets, suburbs, even a university in Sydney is named after him. On our way to the state library, we had to go up Macquarie Street. Seriously, he's everywhere. So I found out that he arrived in 1809... And before then, he had travelled all around the empire as some kind of fixer. So whenever there was a colony in chaos, London sent him in there to clean it up. And Sydney was really in chaos. The New South Wales Corps had just overthrown a governor. It was a coup. And Aaron said that the economy, it was a real dog's breakfast. There was a mix of different types of coins. Including the British sterling coin people were handing out these promissory notes or IOUs. Large merchants will issue notes with their own name on it. Even the contract for George Street was done through the barter of rum. And if you read his personal diaries and the dispatches he sent to London, Macquarie immediately recognised this as a problem. His solution? Create a bank. As to why a bank was necessary, I think it, it goes back to the situation that he finds himself in in 1810, where there's a great deal of political unrest. And I think he perhaps feels that by making these people shareholders, by giving them a stake in the economy of the colony, this may be a way to diffuse some of that. Ah, so Macquarie gives them skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Macquarie needed stability. Look at his letters to London. He made three successive requests for a bank in 1810. He saw this system of IOUs as fraught with fraud, litigation and abuse, and argued for a bank as, and these are his words, a speedy remedy for this growing evil. So how does London respond? Well, it took a year for them to reply. And when they did... And they said no, but here's an idea. We'll give you a whole lot of currency in the shape of old Spanish silver coins that we will customise for you to use in New South Wales, and that will solve the problem. You, you read about this, right? Yeah, the, this is the dumps and the, the rings. Ho- yes, the holy dollar and the dumps, that's right. Yeah. We'll punch the middle out and we'll give the outside ring a, a nominal value and we'll give the inside little piece a nominal value as well. The problem with it was that it was almost 100% silver. And people started to realise that the silver was worth more than the currency itself. So that didn't work. But why? Why was the British government resisting? Why not just let Macquarie have the bank to create the money like he wanted to? Well, according to Aaron, there was a larger conversation in the empire about whether colonies should either be developed as new markets or, as one British law described, 
as receptacles for offenders. There are some people who say that it should be a penal colony, that the government should not be giving opportunities to convicts who are there for punishment rather than improvement. But there were others arguing that allowing a free colonial economy could only be a good thing because it would make things easier on the taxpayer back in Britain. And that's what Macquarie argued? Exactly. And if you read his letters, what he really was arguing for was maybe some kind of economic independence. And uh, he, he comes from quite a liberal, improving mindset and background. So, so it gels with what he thinks, I think, what he personally wants as well. Macquarie was pretty frustrated by this and the failure of the holy dollar. But he had another plan, one that would take the burden of the colony off the empire. In 1810, at the same time that Macquarie was requesting a bank, he also established something called a police fund. Right, but where does Murphy fit in here? Well, that's the funny thing. When I started looking into the police fund, Murphy resurfaced. But before we get into that, have a look at this. Okay, so this is written on the 31st of March, 1810. And in it, Macquarie establishes the police fund, which he says... Uh, is intended to pay for all the jail and police expenses of every description shall be defrayed, together with such other expenses as may be necessarily incurred in ornamenting and improving the town of Sydney and in constructing and repairing the quays, wharfs, bridges, streets and roads. Well, that sounds like a lot. It is essentially a, a colonial revenue Fund. A lot of the early spending was by the governor, was funded by imperial money from Britain. And the police fund gives governors a little bit more discretionary financial power. Wait, so the police fund is about generating revenue, like not actual policing? When Aaron mentioned discretionary financial power, yeah, that was a red flag. But what even is it? Is it a sort of slush fund for Macquarie? Police in this in this period doesn't just mean what we would think of as police of law enforcement in Scotland, especially police means something much bigger about urban management and uh, social order and those kinds of things. So the police fund is this quite broad fund, which Macquarie, who is, of course, Scottish, can dip into as necessary for discretionary payments, which maybe the imperial government wouldn't uh, necessarily approve of. So the police fund is a way for Macquarie to exert his own financial power over the economy so he didn't have to sit around waiting for approval from London. Is that right? Right. It sounded pretty pragmatic to me. But I also found in the Secretary's papers that the fund wasn't just being used to pay for hospitals or roads or schools. Macquarie was also using this fund to make payments to members of the military. By and large, it's intended to to allow discretionary payments for, for things that are public policy. This might be things like um, sending parties out to, um, to patrol the borders, to uh, deal with raids from Aboriginal peoples, things like that. He puts that pretty casually. Are we talking about funding some of the most violent periods of frontier conflict here? Yeah. There are some transactions there that are paid uh, where there's been money um, paid to the 46th Mm -hmm. Regiment Mm -hmm. on account of their services, and this is the words that are actually there, in pursuit of hostile natives. Yeah, yeah, there you go. These things like pursuit of natives, um, 
are things that I, I think are not central to the, re the mission of this regiment, which is there essentially to guard convicts. Um, so these kinds of things, these payments will be made as a bonus to these soldiers who have gone off on this, uh, this mission. A bonus? I mean, this is the bureaucratic, euphemistic language of frontier violence. So 1816 means something to you, Tamsin? Well, yeah, I mean, in April that year, 14 Aboriginal men, women and children were shot and driven off a cliff by British soldiers in what's now called the Appen Massacre. And you can look all this up on the massacre map from Newcastle University. Right, and that was part of a campaign in which Macquarie sent out five detachments from the 46th Regiment. In his words, in the pursuit of hostile natives. And what I found from Macquarie's papers was that Murphy actually led one of those detachments and he was sent out to the Hawkesbury, west of Sydney. So we knew that's where we had to go next. Can I ask you to, um, how, how would you like to be known for the story? Oh God. Um... I like, I spend so much time being invisible. This is um, very difficult. I don't talk about myself. Um, my name is Barry Corr. So we get in touch with an historian who lives on the plains at the foot of the Blue Mountains, cut by a river that was vital to the Burra people. Since I've retired, just spent my time looking at the way memories are created. I'm going to be flashed. Looking at the archaeology of memory... Barry's interested in the layers of how things have been remembered around the Hawkesbury River. I suppose I've lived around the Nepea and Hawkesbury for most of my life. Um, Aboriginal man, um, not of this area. Somewhere along Barry's research journey, out in the town of Windsor, he came across a man named William Cox. And it appears that he was one of Macquarie's right-hand men on the frontier, so Barry took us out to the old Anglican cemetery in Windsor, where Cox is buried. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy he saved us. Cox's grave has a couple of biblical verses on the epitaph. Reader, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, that's an interesting choice of verse. Barry told us that from the time of settlement up until this period, around 1816, the law stopped settlers from waging outright war with Aboriginal people, but... They placed essentially a legal restriction on just killing Aboriginal people on sight. Uh, it had the implication that if you were going to mount expeditions against Aboriginal people... Um, or if you're going to kill Aboriginal people, then you had to do it with a degree of legitimacy. And this came about through these proclamations. So in 1816, Cox sends a series of memorandums to Macquarie regarding a series of expeditions that he was going to mount on the Hawkesbury Nepean rivers, who essentially were going to go out and do things. Do things. Right. So was Murphy involved in some of these things that Barry's talking about? Yeah, well, it's kind of difficult to say. Nothing I've seen would suggest that Murphy was involved in what happened at Upen. But we can see from Macquarie's papers that he was in charge of a detachment and that was sent out in 1816. 
And officially, his instructions were to protect the route to Bathurst from hostile natives. They were ordered in April 1816 to carry out a three-pronged operation. But this is the point where Barry's search for Macquarie's proclamations went cold for a while. And it wasn't until Trove came along, and, you know, it, it is the most brilliant resource for, for historians. It's kind of like Google for history. Amongst the papers that they put up were these papers, these memorandum of Cox. And that was helpful for us because now we're getting really close to finding out how Murphy got that money. All we needed to do was to match up Macquarie's orders to the 46th with this police fund. And because it's a public fund, there was a chance that the transactions in that account might have been made public. So I think I found it. I'm here in the State Library and I'm looking at the uh, Colonial Secretary papers. It's on microfilm. This is probably about the sixth hour that I've been winding through microfilm, um, tracking all the way back from 1810, um, in particular looking into the police fund. Uh, And we can see the £50. I can see the payment here, £50 going to John Campbell Esquire, the paymaster of 46th Regiment, as a gift from the governor to defray. Um, Something about buying a a set of tables and chairs for the officers of the 46th Regiment. You found it? But it sounds a bit sus, like £50. That's almost 90000 Australian dollars for a set of table and chairs. Yeah, it does sound sus, right? But it wasn't the only payment. If we look over that year, there are several transactions made from the police fund to members of the 46th Regiment. And sometimes the language is even more explicit, where people are getting rewards for services rendered in pursuit of hostile native tribes. So are we looking at the origins of the first deposit to the first bank in Australia here? Well, no. We can't say that for sure. And remember, these transactions predated the creation of the bank. But what we can see is that there are plenty of payments going from Macquarie's police fund to members of the 46th Regiment for exactly this sort of violent activity. And in these transactions, Murphy's mentioned, as is William Cox. So what we do know is that Murphy and his regiment had access to a lot more money than what they were getting in their salary. And there's this one last thing. When we were at the bank's archives and found Murphy's name there listed as the first deposit, Kim told us that the bank doesn't consider him the first depositor. And it left me wondering why. Hi, Kim. It's Nicole here. Hi. Thanks so much for taking our call. Sure. Um, Kim, I just wanted to... We're just going just for like a point of clarification. I think uh, Jason mentioned that before. And in particular, we're looking at um, the section there. It's around like the first deposit. And it talks about the first deposit to the Bank of New South Wales was made by... Sergeant. John Harris. Oh, this, oh yeah, this, Murphy. By yep. Murphy, yeah. And we've actually found a little bit more information about Murphy. And I, I was wondering if if you guys had any inform, information about who he was. 
No, we don't. Um, I believe someone in the 1960s actually had a look for him um, and at the time came up with, with some information saying that he had he was a member of, I can't remember which regiment at the moment. He was in charge of, um, might have been the 46th Regiment or something like that, mm-hmm. but that's as far as we've got. Mm. I, I guess I'm a, a little curious about about why he is not considered the like the first official depositor and that the official deposit is listed as, as John Harris. Yeah, okay. He deposited, Murphy deposited on the 5th of April, and the bank hadn't actually officially opened at that stage. So I believe the 5th was a Saturday, um, and what we think happened is that he left the money with the directors, who some of whom he would have known, and basically for, for safekeeping, and that was it. There was no further transaction. There was no further interaction between him and us. This was the muddy territory upon which Australia's first bank established the trust and confidence of its first customers. And that reminded me of a letter that Kim showed us from Governor Macquarie to the bank's first directors. Persevere, gentlemen, in your exertions to foster this infant establishment and be assured it shall ever have my warmest support and patronage and that the time is not far distant when the bank will, on its own merits, obtain the public confidence and gradually flourish to the credit and benefit of the proprietors and the country at large. And that bank, the Bank of New South Wales, it became one of Australia's biggest banks. They recently celebrated their 200th anniversary. This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. There's so much more to this story that we just couldn't get into this episode. So we've made two more on money, banks and trust on our other pod, Think Business Futures. Find it on the History Lab website at 2SER.com or on all the usual podcast apps. This episode was made on the lands of the Gadigal people where the State Library of New South Wales and 2SER are located, the lands of the Buruburungal people where the town of Windsor is located, and the lands of the Gamaragal people where the bank's archives now sit. Jason Lecouye produced this episode with Nicole Sutton. Tom Allenson is our executive producer, and Joe Koenig did the amazing sound work. Lauren Carroll Harris and Ellen Beater helped us knock the scripts into shape, and we're really grateful to Kim Eberhard and, of course, her dogs. He wrote to London, Lizzie, this is important. We love the brilliant State Library of New South Wales, the keeper of records. And thanks to Barry Corr and Aaron Graham as well for your history wisdom. And to UTS Business School and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, thanks so much for your support.